Hi, I'm Jeff Watts, and I want to welcome you to the Renaissance Podcast. And I also want to thank you for partnering with us as we strive to reach the heart of our city with the truth and love of Jesus. There's always something new and exciting happening here at Ren, so please follow us on social media. You can find us by searching Renaissance Decatur. And you can also connect with us by visiting our website, rendecatur.org. Enjoy the podcast, and thank you so much for being a part of this community. Okay, so my name's Jeff, and um, I'm one of the leaders here at Renaissance, and it's my uh, joy to teach out of the Bible today. So if you have a a Bible with you, we're going to spend a lot of our time in the New Testament. So um, thank you for that. Uh, I wanted to tell you uh, the story of uh, Jesus' triumphal entry. It's what it's called in the New Testament. It's what it's called in the Gospels. Jesus' triumphant or triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem. Now, I want you to hear something here. This story of Jesus is recorded in all four biographies or what we call gospels of Jesus in the New Testament. So there were four individuals, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and each one of them took it upon themselves by the inspiration of God and the Holy Spirit to write an account of Jesus' life here on earth. Four different people writing four different stories about the same person, Jesus. Now, like you and maybe me, if you go to a concert or let's say a baseball game with a group of friends and you all sit there and watch the same concert or watch the same baseball game, the next day at work, someone asks you, hey, how was the game? How was the concert? Every one of you will, say, will, will tell a little bit different story of what took place the night before, but all of you are at the same event. So I'm bringing that up because the the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, even though they're all peering into the life of Jesus, they're all looking at it from a little different perspective. And we get to, uh, uh, to see a little different vantage point from each person. Now, I do want to tell you something really unique about this story of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. It is one of a few, a handful of situations or life circumstances that Jesus finds himself in that is in fact recorded in all four biographies about his life. And I I lay emphasis into that because I believe it would be God's desire that we infer an emphasis into that. There are only a handful of things that are recorded in all four gospels. I'll give you a few of them. Uh, How many people know the story of when Jesus feeds the 5,000? That's sort of a major event in his life, would you agree? It's recorded, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. How about the time when, when Peter denies Jesus? How many people remember that story? right? That's recorded in all four gospels. Why would that be important to us? Well, um, if you're ever a person who's denied Jesus and then been accepted, accepted back by Jesus, that's an important story to know, isn't it? Because that's the story of Peter, that he denied Jesus. And yet Jesus, after his resurrection, goes back to Peter and says, do you love me? And Peter's like, yeah. He's like, well, then come with me. Let's go do this thing. So there, there's an important message to be learned there. And, and one of the other ones we learned about is this triumphal entry into Jerusalem. What does this mean exactly? Just in a nutshell, this is what we're going to learn today, that Jesus is up on a a mount called Mount of Olives, and he's just outside of Jerusalem. He's going to get on a donkey, right, the escalate of their day, and he's going to make their way down to the Kidron Valley into the eastern side of the city. And everyone in Jerusalem is witnessing this taking place. This is an important event for us for a number of reasons that we'll get into today. But before we jump into what exactly is taking place in the Gospels, um, I want us to consider the backstory of what's happening in Jerusalem at around 30, 32 AD. 
Many Jews from outside the region of Jerusalem have made a pilgrimage into Jerusalem for this particular week. And they're doing that because God mandated that the Jews come to Jerusalem to worship at the temple and to celebrate this feast called the Passover. Nod at me or wave at me if you've heard of the Passover. The Passover feast is just this simple thing without going into it too much in detail. It's just a feast that God um, wants his people to celebrate to remind them of a day many years ago when they were held in bondage when they were enslaved in a country called Egypt under a wicked king called Pharaoh, God came in hearing their cries for deliverance and rescued them. Now know this, God is a rescuer of people. Say amen to that. Absolutely, that's in fact his very nature is to rescue people when they find themselves bogged down or caught into things that they can't unensnare themselves from. So God is a rescuer. So this feast of Passover is a reminder of that time many years ago when God rescued his people. And so every year he tells them to celebrate this feast to remember that. I'll be very honest with you. Um, this is one of the things that I would call the fundamentals of faith is we must understand that God is a rescuer of people. I'll, I'll be very more honest with you. you. You can never say this too much, in my opinion. Speaking of fundamentals, I was watching this metaphor of the baseball game not long ago. Um, when I was at a game, I could hear coaches from the dugout, dugout yelling to the professional players, guys that are making seven figures a year, telling them, keep your eye on the ball. <laughs> like, I remember hearing that when I was in, like, peewee baseball. You remember this? Like, the fun, like, you never outgrow the fundamentals. Even professional athletes need to be reminded, put your knee on the ground when you're fielding a grounder. Watch the ball all the way through the bat. Is everyone tracking with me here? This, this idea that God is a rescuer is a fundamental aspect of our faith. We need to understand that. God mandates they remember this every year at the same time uh, in the Passover feast. So uh, pilgrims are coming from all around Judea into Jerusalem. The city of Jerusalem historically is probably growing to five, six, maybe seven times its normal size. It's crowded is all I'm saying. This is like Sturgis, if you will, or Bike Week in Daytona. Wrong crowd? I have no idea. Uh, okay, college students, spring break, right? That's what this is. Everyone's sort of pilgrimaged. Okay. Anyways, so the city's crowded, but not only is the city crowded, it's, it's crowded with people, Jewish people, who, as they're celebrating the Passover, remembering what God had done to rescue them out of Egypt, to bring them into the promised land right here in Israel, with Jerusalem being their capital city, they're remembering all of that, all the while they are currently being oppressed by this military presence that is Rome. Rome is actually in charge of them at this point, and it bothers them to no end. How strange this must have been to be celebrating the Passover and, 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 and celebrate how God is a rescuer of people, and yet they are still being oppressed by the Romans this current day. Many people wanted the Roman government to be toppled. Many people wanted the Roman government to be pushed out of the city. They wanted to live their lives their way. They didn't want anyone else telling them what to do. So the city is crowded and it's filled with people who no longer want Rome to be there. The Roman soldiers, historically, we know, have, were not very nice to the Jewish people. We know many times they were caught in murdering Jewish people. We know they were um, actually doing raping women, and et cetera. All of these things were, were terribly happening to the Jewish people. They did not want to be a part of that. And in the middle of this sort of charged backstory, Jesus, Jesus mounts a colt and rides into Jerusalem. And the people lose their ever-loving mind over this. 
They come out in throngs, in great crowds, and begin to proclaim, here comes our king. Now, what does all of this mean? We're about to find out. So would you pray with me? I want to ask God would that God would reveal some things to us. So let's bow our heads and pray. God, we thank you for this story of Jesus' triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem. We thank you that you've laid emphasis in it uh, in the Bible, and so we too want to at least spend time considering everything here. So God, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would you come and be with us? Would you help us to understand this? And would you give us applications to our own life that we not just look at this uh, story historically and go, wow, that's a neat thing that happened, but may it be um, a fuel to, to motivate us to change our li lives in the future. H help it to change the way we think. Help us to see you truly the way you are, not the way we expect you to be. And we pray that we understand all of that in this little passage. God, thank you for Jesus, your son, who's created for us an opportunity to have relationship with you. It is through his death and resurrection that we are saved. It is not by our own works or anything that we can do, but it is by faith. And we thank you, Jesus, for giving us your life. God, we pray that you be with us the rest of our time together. And we pray these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen? Amen. One of the things I love about this story being in all four Gospels, it's almost like um, slow motion replay where you get to see something and you go back and read it again and you get to see something a little different and unique and you get to, and I think at the end of it, we'll get a truer picture of what's really taking place. So I will be in all four Gospels. You'll be able to follow along on the screens if you like, or if you want to try to keep up in your Bible, um, that'd be great as well. But I want to start in Luke chapter 19, starting in verse 28. And we'll, again, the words here on the screen. Uh, Jesus had just finishing finished saying some things here in 28. And after he had finished saying these things, he went out ahead going up into Jerusalem. Now, when he drew near to a village called Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount that is called Olivet or what we call the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and he said, go into the village in front of you. And when on entering, you're going to find a colt tied and on which no one has ever sat. I want you to untie it and bring it here to me. Now, verse 31, if anyone asks you, why are you untying this colt? You should say, the Lord needs it. So, verse 32, so those who went were sent out and went away and found the colt just as it had been told to them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners, dun, 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 its owner said to them, what are you doing? Why are you untying the colt? And they just responded with Jesus' words. They said, the Lord has need of it. So, when I read scripture, I'm a, I'm a very inquisitive person. I'm always asking questions. I used to think it was a curse at one point. Like, why don't I just read things and believe them and trust them and know them? I just can't do that. Anyone else like this? So I'm always asking questions. So the first question I ask when I'm reading something like this is like, why does Jesus need a cult? Why does he need a donkey? He walks everywhere he goes. This is the only instance in all of the biographies of Jesus where we hear of him riding on top of anything. He always walked everywhere. The only exception is maybe when he was in a boat, right, traversing the, the, the lake because you can't, I mean, even Jesus can't walk on water. Uh, or can he? <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. That <laughs> failed. Anyways, <laughs> Jesus walks everywhere, but in this instance, in this politically charged environment, in this Passover feast environment, he says, I need a donkey. Why? Why does he need a donkey? 
is he tired? I don't think he's tired. I think there's something at play here. We don't get it from Luke's gospel. But in Matthew's gospel, there's something else that happens. Now, just by way of reminder, Matthew is also a follower of Jesus, and he's a Jewish person. He used to be a tax collector. He writes his gospel from a little different vantage point than Luke does, and, and Matthew is writing to Jewish believers, Jewish listeners, and he's, he says very Jewish things. In fact, in his account of this story, he quotes an Old Testament prophet that the Jewish people would understand. So look in Matthew chapter 21, starting in verse 4. Jesus asking for a donkey was done, as Matthew says, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by a prophet, saying this, and he quotes Zechariah from the Old Testament, and he says, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, and he's coming humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. See, Jesus is, in fact, not tired. There is a purpose behind all of this, and Matthew helps us to understand that purpose. See, 500 years before Jesus was born, there was a prophet in the uh, Old Testament, and he was telling the Jewish people that there's going to come a king one day, and this king is going to come and rescue you. Remember when I said God loves to rescue his people? This king would be sent by God to rescue his people. And how will you know it's the king that God has sent? Because he'll be riding on a colt. He'll be riding on a donkey. So Jesus, in the middle of his ministry, if you will, <laughs> he, he's no longer trying to hide the fact that he is the chosen one of God. Now, let me just say this. Remember many times in Jesus' ministry when he's talking to his disciples and they'll go, oh, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah, and he would go, shh. Remember when he would say, don't tell anyone? Do you remember reading that and thinking to yourself, what is wrong with him? <laughs> like, didn't you come so that people would know? Yes, he's come so that people would know, just not yet. But the time has come now in this politically charged time during the feast of Passover where God is telling and reminding people that I, I rescue people. Jesus is coming for all to see that he is the king riding in on a colt. Now, just so you know, the geography of Jerusalem looks like this. Jerusalem's up on a little mountain, a hill, if you will. In fact, whenever people talk about going to Jerusalem, they always talk about going up to Jerusalem. They go up to Jerusalem. It doesn't matter where you're coming from, you go up to Jerusalem. But just above Jerusalem is another mount called Olives. The Mount of Olives is in fact higher, has a better vantage point than Jerusalem. Just know this, when Jesus is on top of this mountain, there's not a person here who can't see him here. He has the perfect location. And in the middle of that, when all eyes are on him, when the crowds are in the city streets and they've gathered around him because he just raised Lazarus from the dead a few days before and the word is going around that Jesus is here, Jesus is here, people are freaking out. He goes, aha, now's the time. Can I have a donkey, please? Now, there's something else unique here. When Jesus tells his disciples to go into a village, it also speaks to the prophetic nature that Jesus is. That he, he, like a great prophet, can see into the future, if you will, knows exactly what's going to take place. And when the disciples go into the village, it happens exactly like Jesus said it would. But that's only part of the story. The greater part is that Jesus wants everyone to know that he's the king. And so he comes into the city riding on this to fulfill the words of Zechariah 500 years before Jesus was born. Keep reading verse 6. It says, The disciples go out and they did just as Jesus directed them. And they brought the donkey and the colt and they put their, their cloaks on top of them. Their kind of outer garments or coats, if you will. And it says that most of the crowd then began to sp spread their cloaks on the road. And others, it says, cut branches from trees and, and they spread them out on the road. 
So as Jesus is sort of traversing this winding road down into the Kidron Valley up to the eastern side of Jerusalem, people are taking their, their coats off and throwing them down. Now, I just want you to know this. This is really an act of humility for people to do that. I mean, their very identity is contained in their clothes. It's not indifferent than our culture now. And if you don't believe me, like just look at the, the clothing industry around us today, right? Everyone thinks their persona is identified in the clothes they wear, right? But when Jesus comes, the king God has chosen, they strip off their identity, if you can see this metaphorically, and throw it on the ground, and Jesus walks right through it. This is, this is an act due royalty, when other kings would ride through in the Eastern world, people would do this. They would throw these sort of parades for them and take off their cloaks and allow the king to, to use the wrong word, but to, the only word I can think of, to, to trample across their identity, if you will, to walk above their identity, to be above them as people. Is this making sense to you? And so they're doing this, and some of them are not only taking off their outer garments, they're cutting down branches of trees, and they're, they're waving them. And at this point, the, 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 the frenzy of the crowd is, is really palpable. We leave Matthew's gospel and then go into Mark's gospel, or John's gospel, chapter 12, and we learn another detail from here. Look here in John chapter 12, verse 12 says the next day, this is when Jesus is making his way in, a large crowd had gathered. They'd come to the feast and they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So it says here in verse 13, so they took branches of palm trees. So now we know it's not just tree branches they're cutting down, but it's in fact palm tree branches that they're cutting down. And they went out to meet him and, and they're waving these palm branches and they're throwing them on the ground and they're crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. So it's not just something that's done typically to royalty, but now with the palm branches, we learn another piece of information, that palm branches were typically a sign of victory. In fact, in the Olympic Games back then, when you would win a race, they would give you a palm branch as a trophy. They would crown them with these palm branches. This was the sign of victory, which just so you know, would be a little frustrating. <laughs> You know, you train for a year, year and a half, and you win, and they go, here you go, here's your, here's your palm branch. <laughs> like, what? Where's my endorsement deal is what I'm thinking. Anyways, <laughs> this is not just a, a parade due royalty. This is a, a victory parade for a king, a king that's a conquering king. Now, all the pieces are starting to lock together. For 500 years, the people of God have been hearing this rumor that a king would come one day to, uh, on top of a, a cult. Rome is oppressing them. They're doing horrible things. We want to have independence. God rescued us once before. He surely can do it again. Here comes a guy, and all of a sudden, people are now singing, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What, the Hosanna, if it's language we don't use today, but it just means this. It means God save us. Save us, God. God save us. Save us with your king. Come in and do this mighty thing for us. The Pharisees, the religious leaders, of Jesus' day, they're in the crowds too, and they don't like Jesus, if you didn't know that. And in fact, in a few short days, these Pharisees will have Jesus crucified. <laughs> but in the, in the crowds, they hear these people cry out, Hosanna, save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Um, the Pharisees demand Jesus to silence his disciples. They say, tell them to shut up. You, you, can't, you can't let them go around talking like this. This is heresy. This is crazy talk. You tell them to shut up. And, and Jesus, in a profound statement, tells the Pharisees this. He says, listen, I can, I can tell them to be quiet if that's what you so desire. But if I do, 
the, the stones themselves will cry out the same thing. Because what you don't understand, Mr. Pharisee, sir, is that this is not just an earthly event. This is a cosmic event that's taking place. See, when sin entered the world in Genesis chapter 3, it wasn't just mankind that was separated from a perfect and holy God, but the entire earth was shattered. The entire cosmos was shattered. And it, it too longs and aches, as the Apostle Paul says, it aches for restoration as well. So he says, I can shut the disciples up, but the stones will start to cry, and then whatever shall we do? <laughs> this is a victory march. This is a, a single float parade with Jesus in the middle of it. He's marching into Jerusalem. Here comes our king. Here comes our deliverer. Here comes our savior. Rome is finished. We're going to defeat them. And Jesus marches into Jerusalem. And we go to Mark's gospel. So now we're in the fourth gospel for a final picture of what's taking place. Starting in verse 9, and it says, And those who went before Jesus... And those who followed Jesus were shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, save us, God, save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. I mean, what a celebration. Jesus culminates his entrance into Jerusalem, verse 11. And when he enters Jerusalem, he goes into the temple and when he had looked around and every, at everything and it was already late, it says he left. He left. Now, I'm serious. When I ask questions, when I read the Bible, I'm like, okay, every gospel is talking about this triumphal entry. All of the translations that I read uh, call this a triumphal entry. And yet I see Jesus triumphing over nothing when he comes into Jerusalem. In fact, he gets to the temple. Ah, oh, it's late. The churro trucks are gone. So he just goes ahead and goes home. What is Jesus, Jesus triumphing over anyways? All of the gospel writers make mention that the crowds are crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Spoiler alert, spoiler, spoiler alert in a few days, a lot of those same voices that were crying out, Hosanna, save us, will cry out, crucify him. A lot of the same people standing in this place on the side of the road, waving palm branches, receiving the king that had been sent by God, are but a few days from now going to cry to Pilate, crucify him. We have no need of him. And the question we need to be asking is, is how do people get from this on Sunday, where they receive Jesus, to four days later on Thursday, they're asking him to be murdered? What happens in the mind or the heart of a person that would cause them to change? I can tell you what it is is their expectations of Jesus were wrong. They truly expected this king of God to come in and overthrow this military presence of Rome. They expected Jesus not to march to the temple, but to march to the palace of Pilate. And with demands in his hand, tell him, me and all my bros behind me want you guys gone by morning. And if you don't like it, we're going to wage war against you. And just so you know, Israel has a pretty good track record of defeating their oppressors. <laughs> They're a, a rowdy bunch. And, and, but he doesn't do that. And after a few days of seeing that Jesus comes into the city, he heals people, he's teaching in the temple, he's doing all kinds of things. He's not raising an army. He's not doing any military exploits. And they're going, what kind of king is this? What kind of king is this? And so when they have the opportunity to declare that they want him crucified, they join into that. So when I think of the triumphal entry, I know this. 
Jesus is triumphing over something, all right. He's triumphing over their expectations of who they think he should be. The application for you and me is how fickle can we be with God? How fickle can we be with God when we expect him to do a certain thing for us? And when he does that thing, we go rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. But then when another difficult season comes up and we ask God to move this way to do something, God, you've done this before, you can do it again. And when he chooses not to do something there in his great sovereignty and wisdom, when he chooses not to, how many of us would be honest in church to say, well, we get frustrated with him. Our hearts become hardened towards him. In fact, I, I have... I have, I have family members who have walked away from God because he hasn't responded in the way that they expected him to. This issue of expectations placed upon God is not a cultural thing in the first century in, in, in Judea. This is a humanity issue. When, when God doesn't perform the way the people expect him to perform, many people just wash their hands of him and want nothing to do with him. Jesus does not come to perform for us. He, he comes for another purpose altogether. He was sent by God to perform what God desires him to do. And their expectations were, were misplaced. Jesus is still the king, yes? Jesus is still going to triumph, yes? He's just not going to do it in a way that they expect him to do it. And because of that, many people walk away from him. Um. I mentioned earlier the story of Lazarus being raised from the dead. Lazarus had two sisters, Mary and Martha. And they were people that Jesus knew intimately. They were good friends, and he spent a lot of time with them. I suggest and I believe that Mary and Martha were probably in the crowds on that triumphal entry day. I bet they, too, were waving palm branches. I bet they, too, were like, here comes Jesus. Here he goes. Like, here he comes. But I don't believe that they were of the voices that were crying out, crucify him four days later. And why do I believe that? It's because they knew Jesus intimately. They, they knew he, who he was as a person. They knew that God can and does perform miracles in God's timing alone. Their brother Lazarus was sick. They asked Jesus to come heal him. Jesus said no. Lazarus dies. You guys know the story, right? And then four days later, Jesus comes rolling in and, and raises their brother from the dead. The sisters were upset. You could have changed this. Their expectations was, go get Jesus. He'll fix Lazarus. It'll be fine. But he dies. But, but God comes in and rectifies all of this. He changes the whole situation. Mary and Martha knew this, but the crowds didn't. I wonder if you know it too. I mean, how... How deep is your relationship with him? So when adversity comes, when God doesn't meet your expectation, when he doesn't answer the prayers the way you think he should, are you willing to, to lean in more and, and say, Lord, I don't understand everything, but I'm, I'm still with you. I still want to be with you. Or are you going to be one of those people that say, crucify him, or basically you're dead to me? I don't know. I don't know who you are, but I, I can assure you this. Uh, being a Christian... It's more than just owning the merch. It's more than just, you know, owning a Bible. It's more than just going to church on Sundays or the week or whatever. It's more than that. It is, it is a deep relationship with God through his son, Jesus. There are many times God does not answer prayers the way you think he should. In fact, I heard this said once about him. Um, if you knew everything that God knew about you, you would answer your prayers the same way. 
Like if you, if you knew everything, you wouldn't do it either. I'm just saying. So let's cut him some slack. Trust his sovereignty. Say amen. amen. And let him triumph over our expectations. Now Jesus, even though he leaves that night and goes to, to Beth, Bethany to spend the night, he does come back into Jerusalem. In fact, if we keep reading in Mark's gospel, verse 15, that Jesus comes back to Jerusalem the next day. Aha, he's starting his war, right? But where does he go? He doesn't even go to the, the, uh, the palace of Pilate. He goes to the temple. Look here, verse 15. He comes into Jerusalem, and he goes into the temple. And it says that he begins to drive out, uh, drive out all of those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturns the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. He's cleaning house, basically. And he goes around, verse 17, teaching them time and time again, saying these things to them. Is it not written that my house should be called a house of prayer? My house should be called a house of prayer for all the nations, he says. You people have made it a den of robbers. Hear me, Jesus is waging war against something here. He's just not waging war against the political enemy that they think they have. He's waging war against the religious enemy that we all have. See, if you don't know the backstory, what's happening there, the money changers and everything that's buying and selling in the temple, you have to know about this thing called sacrifice. See, um, because God is holy and perfect and people like you and me are sinful and broken creatures, we can't have relationship with God because we're sinful, right? And so God makes this way to atone for our sin if we sacrifice something. An innocent animal basically was the prescribed method to atone for your sin. And so because you're a sinful person, just picture yourself dragging your little lamb, right? It's spotless and perfect all the way from your house, all the way to Jerusalem. And you get to the temple and you say, I'm ready to sacrifice my lamb to atone for my sins and maybe to atone for the sins of my family. But then the, the priest would come out and begin to look under the hood of your lamb and realize that your spotless lamb, in fact, isn't spotless. No, there's a blemish on your lamb. We're professionals. We know how this thing goes down. And so you're thinking to yourself, you mean I traveled all this way to the temple and I can't even sacrifice my lamb? And they're going, no, no, it's, we have a whole pen full of temple approved lambs right over here. And for $9.95, you can have one. <laughs> Laugh, this is legitimately what's taking place. As people traverse all the way, pilgrimage all the way to Jerusalem, only to be told they cannot have a relationship with God. They cannot have their sins atoned for unless they procure a temple-approved sacrificial animal from them. And all right, here's my money. Oh, that's not temple currency. We need temple currency. Well, how do I get temple currency? Well, you're in luck because today we have money changers over here who can change your money into temple currency uh, at an interest rate. Do you see how they've turned this system where God wants to invite people into his presence to have a relationship with people, but these, these Jewish people, these religious people begin to create a system that actually is keeping people away from God. And when Jesus walks into the temple and sees this, he's reminded that the temple of God is to be a house of prayer, a place of meeting of God and his people. He says, for all nations, and, and you're keeping people out. So when Jesus marches into Jerusalem and he triumphs over things, yes, he triumphs over our expectations of who we think he should be, but he also triumphs against all the religious systems that try to keep um, people away from God. Let me say something about religious systems, just so you know. Religious systems say things like this. You need to try harder. You need to do more. 
You need to act better. And, and Jesus doesn't say that. The religious systems are filled with things like thou shalt nots, right? Thou shalt nots. And Jesus is crying to you, you can do all things through me who strengthens you. Jesus is different than the religious systems. He's triumphing over all those things. There is a way to have relationship with God, and it is through Jesus. It is through Jesus alone. There's no other way. I have a few minutes. I'll close with this last idea. If we go back to um, the beginning, Luke chapter 19. Verse 31, this is Jesus again telling those disciples that when you go into the village and you see the colt and you untie it, if anyone asks why you're untying it, just tell them the Lord has need of it. Um, Every time I've read that, and I've read that many times before, and you probably have as well, I've always read that where Jesus is just saying this, something like this. He says, listen, go into the village and get the colt for me. And, and when you get it, if someone asks you why you're taking it, just tell them that Jesus needs it. Just tell them that the Lord needs it. But what I find striking is that all throughout the, the biographies of Jesus, never do we really read where Jesus needed anything. Nowhere do we read that Jesus had a need for anything. I think there's one instance where Jesus is at the well with a woman. He asked for a drink of water, which just so you know, he never got. <laughs> he never got the drink. Ah, that's a thing. Anyways, and another time he's hanging on the cross just before his last breath, and he says this wor- these words, I thirst. So those are two occasions that we read in the Gospels where Jesus actually needed something. And, and that makes me think that it, maybe Jesus is, in fact, talking about himself here. When he says, tell them the Lord needs it, maybe he's not talking about himself. Maybe he's talking about someone else. In fact, if you were to look at Luke's gospel and see the word Lord, which is used 80 times, and by Jesus himself, he never uses it to talk about himself. Every time Jesus uses the word Lord, he's talking about the Father. He's talking about God the Father. So now, read this again with that in mind. So he goes, he sends his disciples in. He says, if they ask you why you're untying it, tell them the Lord needs it. Tell them Abba needs it. Tell them my dad needs it. Tell them God the Father who sent me needs it. And why is this? Because the time has come. The time has come for Jesus to be revealed for who he is. When, when Jesus was born in that nondescript village, right, back in the day, the world didn't even know it. It says the angels came. Hark the herald angels sing right? It was the angels. Heaven emptied itself to declare the goodness of God. The world did not know yet. The world's going to know now because the father has need of a cult to place his son upon, to march into Jerusalem so that everyone looking that way would see, here comes my deliverer. Here comes my savior. Here comes my king. It has not changed Jesus is the one for all people. If you're, if you're bold enough to invite your friends to come next weekend, to Easter weekend, it is my, it is my plea with the Lord that they would encounter Jesus alone. I, 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 don't, I don't believe they'll come in and, and, and see a religious system that they need to join because we don't do religious systems here very well, right? <laughs> they won't do that. I think they'll see a cool church say amen to that. They'll see it. It's a cool church. I agree with you, right? But cool churches can't save anyone. 
It's my desire that when they come in that they will see Jesus propped up just like God intended him to be propped up for all time and that people will be rescued in that moment. Ah, the time has come. It's time for Jesus to be revealed. It's time for us to see him for who he truly is, for why he's come. He will trample over our expectations of who he is. He will trample over every religious system and, and, and um, process that we've developed to have a relationship with him. He will walk right through that and open a door for you to have a relationship with God. He is the way, Jesus even says himself. Isn't that good? It's so good. I'm such a nerd. I love it. It is so good. It is so good. Mm. I think I'm done. I'm just going to stop. Um, can we pray? Let's pray. Let's do this. Would you stand if you can? Would you stand? Let's do that. I picture, I picture us standing on the side of the road as, as Jesus marches through. And, and we proclaim, Hosanna, Hosanna. Here comes God to save us. Here he comes. God, I pray in Jesus' name that you'd give us the, 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 the breath in our lungs to, to cry out to you, to save us, to help us. I pray that would happen tonight. I, I pray God would remind us um, that he is a God who saves us. Despite ourselves, he still comes and involves himself and involves himself intimately into our lives, and he's always calling us to recognize him. So let, let's pray. God, thank you for everything that you do. Thank you for the in the fullness of time revealing Jesus for the Jewish people and for us as well. That you have truly made an opportunity for all the nations to know you, to have relationship with you. We thank you for that. Jesus, would you come and be a part of our worship now as we cry um, the, uh, the bankruptness of ourselves and that our, our, our desperate need to have you involved in our lives. We want to be a people who lean upon you, who trust you, who call upon you. And we want to be a people to, to believe that you have the best interests for us, even when we, we, we think you're not acting the way you should in a particular situation, we want to, to grow in our faith to believe that you're still sovereign, that your ways are still better, that your thoughts are still higher than ours. God, I pray that we would take off every cloak that we have here that's this sort of mask or um, sort of a cover that we've been wearing around. It almost isn't to give other people the appearance that everything's okay in our lives. May we just take off the cloaks of our lives and lay ourselves bare before you tonight. Underneath, um, uh, underneath the strength and uh, I guess that's what I'm trying to say. Uh, underneath the facade of my strength, Lord, I'm a, a weak person. I'm a needy person. I need you tonight. I need you tonight um, even more than I needed you 20-some years ago when I believed in you for the first time. God, I love that this message of your march, if you will, into Jerusalem is told year 
after year after year to just remind us that you have come to rescue us and deliver us. God, may we never grow tired of telling that story. God, we thank you for everything you do. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Together, we can reach the heart of Decatur. And if you'd like to be a part of that, please go to rendicatororg backslash give and make a commitment to be a part of showing the people of the city of Decatur the truth of Jesus and how much he loves him.